0: Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Stories for the Road and the House of a Thousand Candles Chapter 17 Sister Teresa There was further information I wished to obtain, and I did not blush to pluck it from Stoddard before I let him go that night. Olivia Gladys Armstrong lived in Cincinnati. Her father was a wealthy physician at Walnut Hills. Stoddard knew the family, and I asked questions about them their antecedents, and place of residence that were not perhaps impertinent in view of the fact that I have never consciously set eyes on their daughter in my life. As I look back upon it now, my information secured at that time, touching the history and social position of the Armstrongs of Walnut Hills, Cincinnati, seems excessive, but the curiosity which the Rev. Paul Stoddard satisfied with so little trouble to himself was of immediate interest and importance." As to the girl in grey, I found him far more difficult. She was Marian Devereaux. She was a niece of Sister Teresa, her home was in New York, with another aunt, her parents being dead, and she was a frequent visitor at St. Agatha's. The wayward Olivia and she were on excellent terms, and when it seemed wisest for that vivacious youngster to retire from school at the mid-year recess, Miss Devereux had accompanied her home, ostensibly for a visit, "'but really to break the force of the blow. "'It was a pretty story, "'and enhanced my already high opinion of Miss Devro, "'while at the same time I admired the unknown Olivia Gladys, "'none the less. "'When Stoddard left me I dug out of a drawer "'my copy of John Marshall Glenarm's will "'and reread it for the first time "'since Pickering gave it to me in New York. "'There was one provision to which I had not given a single thought, "'and when I had smoothed the thin typewritten sheets "'upon the table in my room,' I read it over and over again, construing it in a new light with every reading. It read, Provided, further, that in the event of the marriage of said John Glenarm to the said Marian Devereux, or in the event of any promise or contract of marriage between said persons within five years from the date of said John Glenarm's acceptance of the provisions of this will, the whole estate shall become the property absolutely of St. Agatha's School at Annandale "'Lavonna County, Indiana, "'a corporation under the laws of said state. "'Well, bully for the old boy!' "'I muttered, finally, "'folding the copy with something akin to reverence "'for my grandfather's shrewdness "'in closing so many doors upon his heirs. "'It required no lawyer to interpret this paragraph. "'If I could not secure his estate "'by settling at Glenarm for a year, "'I was not to gain it "'by marrying the alternative heir. "'Here, clearly,' was not one of those situations so often contrived by novelists in which the luckless heir presumptive, cut off without a cent, wedges the pretty cousin who gets the fortune, and they live happily together ever afterward. John Marshall Glenarm had explicitly provided against any such frustration of his plans. Well, bully for you, John Marshall Glenarm! I rose and bowed low to his photograph. On top of my mail next morning lay a small envelope, unstamped, and addressed to me in a a free-running hand. "'Ferguson left it,' explained Bates. I opened it and read it. "'If convenient, will Mr. Glenarm kindly look in at St. Agatha's some day this week at four o'clock. Sister Teresa wishes to see him.' I whistled softly. My feelings toward Sister Teresa had been those of utter repugnance and antagonism, I had been avoiding her studiously, and was not a little surprised that she should seek an interview with me. Quite possibly she wished to inquire how soon I expected to abandon Glenarm House, or perhaps she wished to admonish me as to the perils of my soul. In any event, I liked the quality of her note, and I was curious to know why she sent for me. Moreover, Marian Devereux was her niece, and that was wholly in the sister's favour. At four o'clock I passed into St. Agatha Territory and rang the bell at the door of the building where I had left Livia the evening I found her in the chapel. A sister admitted me, led the way to a small reception room where, I imagined, the visiting parent was received, and left me. I felt a good deal like a schoolboy who has been summoned before a severe master for discipline. I was idly beating my hat with my gloves when a quick step sounded in the hall, and instantly a brown-clad figure appeared in the doorway. "'Mr. Glenarm? It was a deep, rich voice, a voice of assurance, a voice, may I say, of the world, a voice, too, may I add, of a woman who is likely to say what she means without ado. The white band at her forehead brought into relief two wonderful gray eyes that were alight with kindliness. She surveyed me a moment, then her lips parted in a smile. "'This room is rather forbidding. If you will come with me—' She turned with an air of authority that was part of her undeniable distinction, and I was seated a moment later in a pretty sitting-room, whose windows gave a view of the dark wood and frozen lake beyond. "'I'm afraid, Mr. Glenarm, that you are not disposed to be neighborly, and you must pardon me if I seem to be pursuing you.' Her smile, her voice, her manner, were charming. I had pictured her a sour old woman, who had hidden away from a world that I had offered her no pleasure.' "'The apologies must all be on my side, Sister Teresa. "'I have been greatly occupied since coming here, "'distressed and perplexed even. "'Our young ladies treasure the illusion "'that there are ghosts at your house,' she said, "'with a smile that disposed of the matter. "'She folded her slim white hands on her knees "'and spoke with a simple directness. "'Mr. Glenarm, there is something I wish to say to you, "'but I can say it only if we are to be friends.' I HAVE FEARED YOU MIGHT LOOK UPON US HERE AS ENEMIES. THAT IS A STRONG WORD, I REPLIED, EVASIVELY. LET ME SAY TO YOU THAT I HOPE VERY MUCH THAT NOTHING WILL EVER PREVENT YOUR INHERITING ALL THAT MR. Glenarm WISHED YOU TO HAVE FROM HIM. THANK YOU. THAT IS BOTH KIND AND GENEROUS, I SAID, WITH NO LITTLE SURPRISE. NOT IN THE LEAST. I SHOULD BE DISLOYAL TO YOUR GRANDFATHER, WHO WAS MY FRIEND AND THE FRIEND OF MY FAMILY, if I did not feel kindly toward you and wish you well. And I must say for my niece, Miss Devereux, I found a certain pleasure in pronouncing her name, Miss Devereux is very greatly disturbed over the good intentions of your grandfather in placing her name in his will. You can doubtless understand how uncomfortable a person of any sensibility would be under the circumstances. I'm sorry you have never met her, she is a very charming young woman whose happiness does not, I may say, depend on other people's money. She had never told then. I smiled at the recollection of our interviews. I'm sure that is true, Sister Teresa. Now I wish to speak to you about a matter of some delicacy. It is, I understand perfectly, no business of mine how much of a fortune Mr. Glenarm left. But this matter has been brought to my attention in a disagreeable way. "'Your grandfather established this school. "'He gave most of the money for these buildings. "'I had other friends who offered to contribute, "'but he insisted on doing it all. "'But now Mr. Pickering insists that the money, "'or part of it at least, was only a loan.' "'Yes, I understand. "'Mr. Pickering tells me that he has no alternative in the matter, "'that the law requires him to collect this money "'as a debt due the estate.' "'That is undoubtedly true, as a general proposition. "'He told me in New York that he had a claim against you for fifty thousand dollars.' "'Yes, that is the amount. "'I wish to say to you, Mr. Glenarm, that if it is necessary, I can pay that amount. "'Pray do not trouble about it, Sister Teresa. "'There are a good many things about my grandfather's affairs that I don't understand, "'but I am not going to see an old friend of his swindled.' There's more in all this than appears. My grandfather seems to have mislaid or lost most of his assets before he died, and yet he had the reputation of being a pretty cautious businessman. The impression is abroad, as you must know, that your grandfather concealed his fortune before his death. The people hereabouts believe so, and Mr. Pickering, the executor, has been unable to trace it. Yes, I believe Mr. Pickering has not been able to solve the problem. I said it, and I laughed. But, of course, you and he will cooperate in an effort to find the lost property. She bent forward slightly. Her eyes, as they met mine, examined me with a keen interest. Why shouldn't I be frank with you, Sister Teresa? I have every reason for believing Arthur Pickering is a scoundrel. He does not care to cooperate with me in searching for this money. The fact is... "'that he very much wishes to eliminate me "'as a factor in the settlement of the estate. "'I speak carefully. "'I know exactly what I'm saying.' "'She bowed her head slightly "'and was silent for a moment. "'The silence was the more marked "'from the fact that the hood of her habit "'concealed her face. "'What you say is very serious.' "'Yes, and his offense is equally serious. "'It may seem odd for me to be saying this to you,' when I am a stranger, when you may be pardoned for having no very high opinion of me. She turned her face to me. It was singularly gentle and refined, not a face to associate with an idea of self-seeking or duplicity. I sent for you, Mr. Glenarm, because I had a very good opinion of you, because, for one reason, you are the grandson of your grandfather, and the friendly light in her gray eyes "'drove away any lingering doubt "'I may have had as to her sincerity. "'I wish to warn you "'to have a care for your own safety. "'I don't warn you "'against Arthur Pickering alone, "'but against the countryside. "'The idea of a hidden fortune "'is alluring. "'A mysterious house "'and a lost treasure "'make a very enticing combination. "'I fancy Mr. Glenarm "'did not realize "'that he was creating dangers "'for the people he wished to help.' "'She was silent again.' Her eyes bent meditatively upon me, and then she spoke abruptly. "'Mr. Pickering wishes to marry my niece.' "'Ah! I've been waiting to hear that. I'm exceedingly glad to know that he has so noble an ambition. But Miss Devereaux isn't encouraging him, as near as I can make out. She refused to go to California with his party. I happen to know that. That whole California episode would have been amusing if it had not been ridiculous.' Marion never had the slightest idea of going with him, but she is sometimes a little shall I say headstrong, please do I like the word, and the quality and Mr. Pickering's rather elaborate methods of wooing he's as heavy as lead. I declared those methods of wooing amuse Marion up to a certain point, then they annoy her. She has implied pretty strongly that the claim against me could be easily adjusted if Marion marries him but she will never marry him, whether she benefits by your grandfather's will, or however that may be. I should say not, I declared with a warmth that caused Sister Teresa to sweep me warily with those wonderful gray eyes. But first he expects to find this fortune and endow Miss Devereux with it. That's part of his scheme, and my own interest in the estate must be eliminated before he can bring that condition about. But, Sister Teresa, I am not so easily got rid of as Arthur Pickering imagines. My staying qualities, which were always weak in the eyes of my family, have been braced up a trifle. Yes, I thought pleasure and hope were both expressed in that monosyllable, and my heart warmed to her. Sister Teresa, you and I are understanding each other much better than I imagine we should. And we both laughed, feeling a real sympathy growing between us. Yes, I believe we are. "'and the smile lighted her face again. "'So I'm going to tell you two things. "'The first is that Arthur Pickering "'will never find my grandfather's lost fortune, "'assuming that any exists. "'The second is that in no event "'will he marry your niece. "'You speak with a good deal of confidence,' "'she said, and laughed a low, murmuring laugh. "'I thought there was relief in it. "'But I didn't suppose Marion's affairs interested you?' "'They don't, Sister Teresa.' "'Her affairs are not of the slightest importance. "'But she is. "'There was frank inquiry in her eyes now. "'But you don't know her. "'You've missed your opportunity. "'To be sure, I don't know her, "'but I know Olivia Gladys Armstrong. "'She's a particular friend of mine. "'We have chased rabbits together, "'and she told me a great deal. "'I have formed a very good opinion of Miss Devereux in that way.' "'Oh, that note you wrote about Olivia's intrusions beyond the wall. I should thank you for it, but I really didn't mind.' "'A note? I never wrote you a note until today.' "'Well, someone did,' I said, and then she smiled. "'Oh, that must have been Marion. She was always Olivia's loyal friend.' "'I should say so.' Sister Teresa laughed merrily. "'But you shouldn't have known Olivia. "'It's unpardonable. "'If she played tricks upon you, "'you should not have taken advantage of them "'to make her acquaintance. "'That wasn't fair to me.' "'Oh, I suppose not. "'But I protest against this deportation. "'The landscape hereabouts is only so much sky, "'snow, and lumber without her.' "'We miss her, too,' replied Sister Teresa. "'We have less to do.' "'And still I protest,' I declared, rising Sister Teresa, I thank you with all my heart for what you've said to me, for the disposition to say it. And this debt to the estate is something, I promise you, that shall not trouble you. Then there's a truce between us. We are not enemies at all, are we? No, for Olivia's sake, at least, we shall be friends. I went home and studied the timetable. We'll return to chapter 18, right after this sponsor message. And now, Chapter 18, Golden Butterflies. If you are one of those captious people who must verify by the calendar every new moon you read of in a book, and if you are pained to discover the historian lifting anchor and spreading sail contrary to the reckonings of the nautical almanac, I beg to call your attention to these items from the timetable of the Midwestern and Southern Railway for December 1901. The southbound express passed Annandale at exactly 53 minutes after 4 p.m. It was scheduled to reach Cincinnati at 11 o'clock sharp. These items are, I trust, sufficiently explicit. To the student of morals and motives, I will say a further word. I had resolved to practice deception in running away from Glenarm House to keep my promise to Mary and Devereaux. By leaving, I should forfeit my right to any part of my grandfather's estate. I knew that, and accepted the issue without regret but I had no intention of surrendering Glenarm House to Arthur Pickering, particularly now that I realized how completely I had placed myself in his trap. I felt, moreover, a duty to my dead grandfather, and, not least, the attacks of Morgan and the strange ways of Bates had stirred whatever fighting blood there was in me. Pickering and I were engaged in a sharp contest, and I was beginning to enjoy it to the full, but I did not falter in my determination to visit Cincinnati hoping to return without my absence being discovered. So the next afternoon, I began preparing for my journey. Bates, I fear that I'm taking a severe cold, and I'm going to dose myself with whiskey and quinine and go to bed. I shan't want any dinner. Nothing until you see me again. I yawned and stretched myself with a groan. I'm very sorry, sir. Shall I call the doctor? Not a bit of it. I'll sleep it off and be as lively as a cricket in the morning. At four o'clock I told him to carry some hot water and lemons to my room, bade him an emphatic good night, and locked the door as he left. Then I packed my evening clothes in a suitcase. I threw the bag and a heavy ulster from the window, swung myself out upon the limb of a big maple, and let it bend under me to its sharpest curb, then dropped lightly to the ground.' I passed the gate and struck off toward the village with a joyful sense of freedom. When I reached the station, I sought at once the southbound platform, not wishing to be seen buying a ticket. A few other passengers were assembling, but I saw no one I recognized. Number six, I heard the agent say, was on time, and in a few minutes it came roaring up. I bought a seat in the Washington sleeper and went into the dining car for supper. The train was full of people hurrying to various ports for the holidays but they had, I reflected, no advantage over me. I, too, was bound on a definite errand, though my journey was, I imagined, less commonplace in its character than the homing flight of most of my fellow travellers. I made myself comfortable and dozed and dreamed as the train plunged through the dark. There was a wait, with much shifting of cars, where we crossed the Wabash, then we sped on. It grew warmer as we drew southward and the conductor was confident we should reach Cincinnati on time. The through-passengers about me went to bed, and I was left sprawled out in my open section, lurking on the shadowy frontier between the known world and dreamland. "'We're running into Cincinnati, ten minutes late,' said the porter's voice, and then a moment I was in the vestibule and out, hurrying to a hotel. At the St. Botolph I ordered a carriage and broke all records changing my clothes. The timetable informed me that the Northern Express left at half-past one. There was no reason why I should not be safe at Glenarm House by my usual breakfast hour, if all went well. To avoid loss of time in returning to the station, I paid the hotel charge and carried my bag away with me. Dr. Armstrong's residence? Yes, sir. I've already taken one load there. The carriage was soon climbing what seemed to be a mountain to the heights above Cincinnati. To this day, I associate Ohio's most interesting city with a lonely carriage ride that seemed to be chiefly uphill, through a region that was as strange to me as a trackless jungle in the wilds of Africa. And my heart began to perform strange tattoos on my ribs. I was going to the house of a gentleman who did not know of my existence to see a girl who was his guest, to whom I had never, as the conventions go, been presented. It did not seem half so easy now that I was well launched upon the adventure. I stopped the cabman just as he was about to enter an iron gateway whose posts bore two great lamps. "'That's all right, sir. I can drive right in.' "'But you needn't,' I said, jumping out. "'Wait here.' Dr. Armstrong's residence was brilliantly lighted, and the strains of a waltz stole across the lawn cheerily. Several carriages swept past me as I followed the walk. I was arriving at a fashionable hour. It was nearly twelve and just how to effect an entrance without being thrown out as an interloper was a formidable problem now that I had reached the house. I must catch my train home, and this left no margin for explanation to an outraged host whose first impulse would very likely be to turn me over to the police. I made a detour and studied the house, seeking a door by which I could enter without passing the unfriendly Gibraltar of a host and hostess on guard to welcome belated guests. A long conservatory filled with tropical plants gave me my opportunity. Promenaders went idly through and out into another part of the house by an exit I could not see. A handsome, spectacled gentleman opened a glass door within a yard of where I stood, sniffed the air, and said to his companion, as he turned back with a shrug into the conservatory, Ah, there's no sign of snow. It isn't Christmas weather at all. He strolled away through the palms, and I instantly threw off my ulster and hat cast them behind some bushes, and boldly opened the door, and entered. The ballroom was on the third floor, but the guests were straggling down to supper, and I took my stand at the foot of the broad stairway and glanced up carelessly, as though waiting for someone. It was a large and brilliant company, and many a lovely face passed me as I stood waiting. The very size of the gathering gave me security, and I smoothed my gloves complacently. The spectacle gentleman whose breath of night air had given me a valued hint of the open conservatory door came now and stood beside me. He even put his hand on my arm with intimate friendliness. There was a sound of mirth and scampering feet in the hall above, and then down the steps, between the lines of guests arrested in their descent, came a dark laughing girl in the garb of Little Red Riding Hood, and general applause and laughter. "'It's Olivia! She's won the wager!' exclaimed the spectacled gentleman and the girl, whose dark curls were shaken about her face, ran up to us and threw her arms about him and kissed him. There was a charming picture, the figures on the stairway, the pretty, graceful child, the eager, happy faces all about. I was too much interested by this scene of the comedy to be uncomfortable. Then, at the top of the stair, her height accented by her gown of white, stood Marion Devereux, hesitating an instant, as a bird pauses before taking wing and then laughingly running between the lines to where Olivia faced her in mock abjection. To the charm of the girl in the woodland was added now the dignity of beautiful womanhood, and my heart leaped at the thought that I had ever spoken to her, that I was there because she had taunted me with the risk of coming. Above, on the stair landing, a deep-toned clock began to strike midnight, and everyone cried, Merry Christmas, and Olivia's is one, and there was more hand-clapping, "'in which I joined with good will. "'Someone behind me was explaining what had just occurred. "'Olivia, the youngest daughter of the house, "'had been denied a glimpse of the ball. "'Miss Deborah had made a wager with her host "'that Olivia would appear before midnight, "'and Olivia had defeated the plot against her "'and gained the main hall at the stroke of Christmas. "'Good night! Good night!' called Olivia, "'the real Olivia, in derision to the company.' and turned and ran back through the applauding, laughing throng. The spectacled gentleman was Olivia's father, and he mockingly rebuked Marion Devereux for having encouraged an infraction of parental discipline, while she was twitting him upon the loss of his wager. Then her eyes rested upon me for the first time. She smiled slightly, but continued talking placidly to her host. The situation did not please me. I had not travelled so far, and burglarously entered Dr. Armstrong's house in quest of a girl with blue eyes, merely to stand by while she talked to another man. I drew nearer, impatiently, and was conscious that four other young men in white waistcoats and gloves, quite as irreproachable as my own, stood ready to claim her the instant she was free. I did not propose to be thwarted by the beau of Cincinnati, so I stepped toward Dr. Armstrong. "'I beg your pardon, doctor,' I said, with an assurance for which I blushed to this hour." "'All right, my boy. I, too, have been an Arcady," he exclaimed in cheerful apology, and she put her hand on my arm, and I led her away. "'He called me my boy, so I must be passing muster,' I remarked, not daring to look at her. "'He's afraid not to recognize you. His inability to remember faces is a town joke.' We reached a quiet corner of the great hall, and I found a seat for her. "'You don't seem surprised to see me. You knew I would come.' "'I should have come across the world for this, for just this.' Her eyes were grave at once. "'Why did you come? "'I did not think you were so foolish. "'This is all so wretched, so unfortunate. "'You didn't know that Mr. Pickering—' "'Mr. Pickering—' She sat greatly distressed, and this name came from her chokingly. "'Yes, what of him?' I laughed. "'He is well on his way to California.' "'And without you?' She spoke hurriedly, eagerly, bending toward me. "'No, you don't know. You don't understand. He's here. He abandoned his California trip at Chicago. He telegraphed me to expect him. Here. Tonight. You must go at once. At once.' "'Ah, but you can't frighten me,' I said, trying to realize just what a meeting with Pickering in that house might mean. "'No.' she looked anxiously about. "'They were to arrive late, he and the tailors. They know the Armstrongs quite well. They can come at any moment now. Please, go.' "'But I have only a few minutes myself. You wouldn't have me sit them out in the station downtown. There are some things I've come to say, and Arthur Pickering and I are not afraid of each other. But you must not meet him here. Think what that would mean to me. You are very foolhardy, Mr. Glenarm.' I had no idea you would come. But you wished to try me. You challenged me. That wasn't me. It was Olivia, she laughed, more at ease. It was Olivia. I thought— Yes, what did you think? I asked. That I was tied hand and foot by a dead man's money? No, it wasn't that wretched fortune. But I enjoyed playing the child before you. I really love Olivia, and it seemed that the fairies were protecting me— "'and that I could play being a child to the very end of the chapter "'without any real mischief coming of it. "'I wish I were Olivia,' she declared, her eyes away from me. "'That's rather idle. "'I'm not really sure yet what your name is, and I don't care. "'Let's imagine that we haven't any names. "'I'm sure my name isn't of any use, "'and I'll be glad to go nameless all my days, if only—' "'If only? If only?' "'She repeated idly, opening and closing her fan.' "'It was a frail blue trifle painted in golden butterflies. "'There are so many if-onlys that I hesitate to choose, "'but I will venture one. "'If only you will come back to St. Agatha's. "'Not tomorrow or the next day, but, say, with the first bluebirds. "'I believe they are the harbingers up there.' "'Her very ease was a balm to my spirit. "'She was now a veritable daughter of repose. "'One arm in its long white sheath lay quiet in her lap, Her right hand held the golden butterflies against the soft curve of her cheek. A collar of pearls clasped her throat and accented the clear, girlish lines of her profile. I felt the appeal of her youth and purity. It was like a cry in my heart, and I forgot the dreary house by the lake and Pickering and the weeks within the stone walls of my prison. The friends who know me best never expect me to promise to be anywhere at a given time. I can't tell you, "'Perhaps I shall follow the bluebirds to Indiana. "'But why should I, "'when I can't play being Olivia any more?' "'No, I'm very dull. "'That note of apology you wrote from the school "'really fooled me. "'But I have seen the real Olivia now. "'I don't want you to go too far, "'not where I can't follow. "'This flight I shall hardly dare repeat.' "'Her lips closed like a rose "'that had gone back to be a bud again, "'and she pondered a moment.' "'slowly freeing and imprisoning the golden butterflies. "'You have risked a fortune, Mr. Glenarm, "'very, very foolishly. "'And more, if you are found here... "'Why, Olivia must have recognized you. "'She must have seen you often across the wall. "'But I don't care. "'I am not staying at that ruin up there for money. "'My grandfather meant more to me than that. "'Yes, I believe that is so. "'He was a dear old gentleman.' "'and he liked me because I thought his jokes adorable. "'My father and he had known each other. "'But there was no expectation, "'no wish to profit by his friendship. "'My name in his will is a great embarrassment, "'a source of real annoyance. "'The newspapers have printed dreadful pictures of me. "'That is why I say to you, quite frankly, "'that I wouldn't accept a cent of Mr. Glenarm's money "'if it were offered me. "'And that is why.' and her smile was a flash of spring. "'I want you to obey the terms of the will and earn your fortune.' She closed the fan sharply and lifted her eyes to mine. "'But there isn't any fortune. It's all a myth, a joke,' I declared. "'Mr. Pickering doesn't seem to think so. He had every reason for believing that Mr. Glenarm was a very rich man. The property can't be found in the usual places. Banks, safety vaults, and the like—' Then where do you think it is? Or better, where do you think Mr. Pickering thinks it is? But assuming that it's buried up there by the lake, like a pirate's treasure, it isn't Pickering's if he finds it. There are laws to protect even the dead from robbery, I concluded hotly. How difficult you are! Suppose you should fall from a boat or be shot accidentally. Then I might have to take the fortune after all, and Mr. Pickering might think of an easier way of getting it than by... "'Stealing it?' "'Yes. "'But you wouldn't—' "'Half-past twelve struck on the stairway, "'and I started to my feet. "'You wouldn't,' I repeated. "'I might, you know. "'I must go, but not with that. "'Not with any hint of that. "'Please. "'If you let him defeat you, "'if you fail to spend your year there, "'we'll overlook this one lapse.' "'She looked me steadily in the eyes— wholly guiltless of coquetry, but infinitely kind. Then... She paused, opened the fan, held it up to the light, and studied the golden butterflies. Yes. Then, let me see. Oh, I shall never chase another rabbit as long as I live. Now go quickly, quickly. But you haven't told me when and where it was we met the first time. Please. She laughed, but urged me away with her eyes. I shan't do it. It isn't proper for me to remember, if your memory is so poor. I wonder how it would seem for us to meet just once, and be introduced. Good night. You really came. You are a gentleman of your word, Squire Glenarm. She gave me the tips of her fingers without looking at me. A servant came in hurriedly. Miss Deborah, Mr. and Mrs. Taylor, and Mr. Pickering are in the drawing-room. Yes, very well. I will come at once. Then to me, they must not see you. There, that way. And she stood in the door facing me, her hands lightly touching the frame as though to secure my way. I turned for a fast look and saw her waiting. Her eyes bent gravely upon me, her arms still half-raised, barring the door. Then she turned swiftly away into the hall. Outside I found my hat and coat and wakened my sleeping driver. He drove like mad into the city and I swung upon the northbound sleeper just as it was drawing out of the station.